Hi everyone, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. This is of course Dads of Daughters and I'm your host Dave Hale. Today on the show I'm chatting to um, a great friend of ours by the name of Chris Townsend. Now Chris is a fascinating guy. He's got two adult children now. Um, So he's bringing a really interesting perspective as, as someone who... I guess is in that the later phase of parenting and, and has been through the ups and downs and the wars of raising, you know, children and adolescents and and has come out the other side. Now I really want to talk to Chris because he's actually a lecturer in outdoor education and he's got some really um some really great insights as to why why our young people in particular and all of us really need to be connected to to the outdoors, to the to the living world outside um, the four walls of our house. Um, and I think that's particularly true for for young girls, where it's perhaps not as encouraged as 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 it is as much for for boys in the world. Um, but beyond that, he he's got some really great insights into navigating his own childhood and, and the trauma that, that was part of that to an extent um, and and balancing um, life I think in general it, it's it's a really interesting chat um, I hope you enjoy it um, leave any comments or questions um, and yeah we'll chat to you soon Chris, hello. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank um, you for me. I I think of you as a bit of an oracle when it comes to life, so no pressure. But I really appreciate you making the time. Uh, can I question you straight away? <laughs> you would see me as an oracle. <laughs> well, let's let's revisit the end of the conversation, okay. maybe. Okay. So maybe maybe let's just start sort of here and now and. Maybe you could paint a picture as to what what your sort of parenting day to day looks like at the moment. Sure. Um, well, we have two adult children. Yeah. Uh, ben, who's uh, approaching twenty nine, and Chloe, who's turned twenty five. Yeah. Twenty five. I've got it wrong. <laughs> 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 um, so we. We're in that stage of parenting that is uh, fascinating in that it, it's, a st- it's, a, it's a stage of parenting I think you think about a lot mm. when you're in the throes and in, in the uh, right in the middle of it all. Yeah. Um, and we joke with our friends that, you know, when they're getting married or when they're having children, it's a, it, a standing joke with us that the first 20 years are the hardest. Um, unfortunately, it's completely true as well as being funny I remember um, you telling me that yeah, joke yes <laughs> years yeah, well, ago it, it is yeah not a joke it's actually it's, it's amazing because you have oh, can we call it wisdom you have mm-hmm. the benefit of hindsight you have experience you have some things you can notch up and call them successes and you have things that you can definitely look at and go yep that, that didn't work out very well so you have this amazing data set of how your life's kind of worked out to date <laughs> so parenting at the moment is um, occasional catch-ups yeah. with our I, I, you know our, can I call them kids they, they're sort of always kids I, I, and that's fun. I never know what to call them when people say you have kids <laughs> and I'm going I've got adult we've got adult children yeah and, but when Annie and I are in private conversation have you heard from the kids so yeah I'd never thought about that they exist in two in two worlds really so our son Ben is working in the humanitarian sector mm-hmm He's been living in Bangladesh for a year, working in uh, in a sort of refugee um, in refugee camps around there in a uh, quite a volatile and um, confronting context, I suppose. But he's 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 going really really well, and recently actually wrote a great piece for the ABC on loneliness which yeah. I think is a, is a great measure of the guy and yeah that that certainly as I, when I think about being his parent his father I'm so glad he was able to articulate what he did um, so yeah. he's he, he's um, that's our boy and he, he 
he was first, and then Chloe uh, is. I think she's actually 24. <laughs> <laughs> she's on uh, the on the journey to being 25. Yes, she's she's in her 25th year. Yeah, <laughs> um, she's just she's living down in Melbourne. Yeah, uh, in the leafy suburbs of Hawthorne, Ooh. which suits one aspect of her personality. <laughs> um, and she's just started. She's fully qualified as a as a lawyer now, and she's about to be. And I'm going to embarrass myself. I forget what they call the term over here. Not yeah. admitted to the bar, but it's the um, she's she's about to walk up and get the real deal certificate. So. Yeah, I can't help you with that terminology. No, no. Um, so she's down in Melbourne, and so we 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 have a long distance relationship with yeah. our with our, um, our adult children, <laughs> our adult children. Um, lots lots and lots of communication on Messenger. Yeah, right. Um, we have a thing called Townies Family Chats, and that's where everything from some crazy meme that popped up to uh, what's happening with the election to finding out yesterday that Ben got a promotion in his job mm. through to Chloe wondering whether she should join us on our next sort of bit of time off. And, yeah. And that's good. That's like It's like a bat phone for the family that we... <laughs> you, you, yeah. It's like a secret line. <laughs> it's like a secret line. It's a nice thing, Kevin. So that that's our our common, uh, uh, sorry, our current family reality and parenting reality. Yeah. Is that we we parent remotely now. Yeah. And I remember my mother saying she still says it. She's eighty five, my mum, and she still mm. says this today. She goes, "All oh, you you understand now. You're a parent. You, you you never stop thinking about them, and and that, that's true. You don't, but you." You're not consumed by the daily task of managing them, I suppose, or, mm. or or being some sort of interface between them and the dangers of the world, or keeping them safe from those things. So, um, so they exist in your mind. Um, you know, it's 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 a, it's a very cerebral thing being a parent at, at this age of you know, thinking about them a lot. It must be nice not having multiple sources of vomit on you each night, which Ooh. is kind of where I'm at at the moment. Right. Yes, and I've got a. Uh, I've got a great vomit story for each child. <laughs> I won't sicken you with, but you know when you lay down yeah. and you're holding your child up, this was my son, and then something came out of his mouth and I had my mouth open in awe. And there was exchange of body fluids, let's put it that way. <laughs> a one-way exchange, I hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I then went and threw up. Yeah. I think I held him on a beanbag, ran into the bathroom and threw up. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> um, just thinking back to that article that Ben published, I'll, I'll share that um, in the show notes as well. Yeah. Because it is a great piece. You've read it, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Um, maybe, maybe let's step back now for a bit of context about who you are and, and get into the easy questions of why you are the way that you are. Um, so perhaps just thinking back to, to when you were growing up in sort of your formative years, who were the influences in your life growing up? Right. Okay. So I was born in, I was born at home in a, a little a small town village, I don't know what you'd call it these days, outside of, south of London, called mm-hmm. Coulsdon, yeah. um, near Purley. Purley's the brunt of uh, the nudge, nudge, wink, wink, uh, Monty Python joke, but series <laughs> of jokes, so there's my claim to fame. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, you know, we, we were from the suburbs, so it was very much my sister, I had a, a sister, Angela, she's three years older than me, uh, my mum, Sylvia, uh, was from uh, London, from... Kennington in London and was very much a war child she mm. was born in 1933 uh, and her formative years were through yeah was was through uh, the catastrophe of war mm. um, she was from a very working class family uh, very they're real cockneys when you mum had uh, elocution lessons so when you meet her she's a little bit plummy <laughs> <laughs> But when we go and meet with the family, the extended family, and Annie's with us, I have to be her interpreter. So, yeah. What was that guy talking about? No, I mean, son, there's, there's, a, there's a rough edge. There's a lot of rough diamonds in the family. So she's still over there? She's still over there. She lives now in a place called Tatsfield, near, not far from Biggin Hill, okay. which is kind of relevant. That might come into her story a little bit later. Yeah. My dad um, was the complete opposite. He was... Uh, 
orphaned at quite a young age yeah. and his own uh, his own parents uh, there was a very sort of dubious uh, a very dubious and a lot of sleight of hand going on I think he was the uh, the son a twin son of uh, Daisy and Daisy was the mistress of Charles Townsend mm. who we don't really know much about yeah he seemed to be a very sort of uh, shut down character in our family story we know he, he's a bit of a mystery but I think by the time my dad was 10 11 he was orphaned his mother died first mm. uh, his father um, who was somewhat remote from them anyway was uh, died a couple of years later and he and his twin brother were brought up by uh, their half-sister Jean who was 10 years older mm. and so that was interesting that played in a role in his upbringing and his whole the bits of parenting that he had missing definitely sort of played out um, and again same age just a year younger than my mum both wartime kids yeah. both evacuated a lot both with different responses to the trauma and there's I've read bits and pieces about it there's, there's a generational trauma definitely yeah. from um, their responses perhaps their lived experience and how that's passed on be it genetically or behaviourally or yeah. um, whatever the determinants are, yeah. uh, um, it's been a fascinating, it's always in the back of my mind. And mm. If mum was here in this conversation now, three sentences in, we'd be talking about um, how she used to come out of Kennington Tube Station for the best part of three years living underground and she had to run ahead because her mother couldn't bear to see if the tenement they were living in was still standing mm. um, and she had to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down as to whether it had been bombed so wow. uh, last year um, I did a day trip my mum still hops on buses like they're you know she's she's knows London better than most young people yeah. know London you know uh, and she took us through all her key places where she was born St Guy's Hospital mm. tenements flats that she lived in that have now been replaced uh, the, the the reasonably nice flat they lived in, and she took us to all the you know where she used to play. We used to play hopscotch, and mm. um, so that's the setting. That's it was Dennis and Sylvia. Um, Mum talks about my my dad. My they divorced when I was about fifteen, mm. and uh, it, it was a very volatile and toxic mm. um, setting our household, and it was never violent. Well, it was really violent, but it was uh, it was emotionally toxic, yeah. emotionally disturbing place, a sort of setting to grow up in. And my dad um, was in, got into another relationship with a woman who was a lot younger, uh, twenty something years younger, and that scarred my mother terribly. A sort of left on the shelf sort of experience, and she was on her own for twenty years. And um, my dad moved down to Wales and had a, a very good life and uh, a very happy life down there but he passed away 11 years ago cancer mm. uh, mum had a heart attack last year at 84 and um, had quad bypass and today as we speak she's walking around Madeira in Portugal on her own <laughs> looking at the flower festival <laughs> and she's, she'll probably rack up four or five miles walking today. wow that's extraordinary yeah so they're my um that's my parents. So she's a survivor. Very much a survivor and very dutiful. Yeah. That, that idea of... of um, someone asked me the other day, he said, oh, they were talking about having the, giving a eulogy at an aunt's funeral and this came up with... They said, would you... What would you say about your own mum? And I said, well, I don't want to think about her not being here, but of course it crosses your mind. Mm. And I'd say that's... The, if I ever envisage saying anything about her, it's that she was just so dutiful mm. um, that it, it's sometimes it's, so it's hard to explain it's certainly hard for a lot of young people to see like the role she plays in her community um, and the way she's been reciprocally supported since she's been ill the way she supported Michael who, who was her husband she married after 20 something years on her own mm. she married a, uh, a guy who had been a, a very uh, physically and quite mentally damaged Spitfire pilot mm. In the streets of London, watching these Spitfire planes have dogfights above the city of London and trying to shoot down V2 bombs, and um, they were her heroes. And ironically, later in life, she, in her second marriage, which 
she was very happy and she yeah. she said she married one of her one of her heroes basically wow not by name but just by the, the role that he he, yeah. he played he was shot down near Bologna near Sicily right near the closing stages of the war the day before his 21st birthday and was in a mm. coma for three or four months but her her life was dedicated to caring for him and giving him trying to give him a little bit of happiness every day mm. um, and the sense of duty and the love that came from that duty that's something I see in my daughter totally mm. I see that if it's again the determined genetic behavioral environmental Chloe has yeah. her, she has that that ingredient yeah right. my daughter mm. Did you, did you, if we fast forward a bit, did you sort of always feel like you wanted to have kids of your own? Um, strangely, yeah. I was in my circle of friends when I was at school. I was a, I was, I wasn't a very sort of confident person, but I was. Everyone kept saying I should be an actor. I thought I was going. I honestly thought I was going to be a stuntman for about ten years. <laughs> I thought I was going to be a stuntman, and. Um, I, I remember being quite. Oh, we were living in our house in Purley then. I left there when we were about eleven, so I, I I was probably ten years old. And for about the tenth time that day, I got shot down by my my friend, who was doing a hypothetical sort of John Wayne uh, <laughs> rifle shot at me, and I fell two floors onto the cardboard boxes and mattresses we had on the floor. My mother came back from work. She worked. Um, at that stage as a secretary for a very small family-run sort of boutique building business next door. And she came back to, I don't know, prepare some lunch, and she was just horrified. Mm. And she said, one day, she was shaking, she said, one day you'll have children and you'll know what a stupid thing <laughs> is you're doing. And, and, and I was like, why, why wouldn't you want to, why wouldn't you want to, to, your child to do this? But I remember that being one of the first things. Oh, yeah, I wonder what it'll be like to be... Uh, a father and I and I knew I, I always knew I would be I just never knew mm. when and I think that's part of the fascination of uh, you know of, of a lifelong relationship Annie and I have been together for 30 years yeah. and um, you know you think through your childhood who's this person you're going to be with and I think I was more fascinated with the idea as who will I have children with mm. rather than who will this woman that I meet be? It was yeah. who, who will I, yeah, where's my co-parent? Where's my co-pilot for, for all this? That's, that's quite a tangible thing from wow. think, looking back on it, which is interesting, yeah. And how old were you when you met Annie? Well, um, I was 20, uh, 23 or 24, 23, yeah. We met in, um, I, I had been in a travelling relationship for a couple of years. I'd been in the music business for a few years and I was uh, in a relationship with uh, a woman who's a studio manager of a recording studio, a large recording studio in London. And after a year, she was leaving me. Um, and it was literally that song, if you leave, can I come too? And we negotiated that I came with her and her friend and we came over to Australia and did a year backpacking around. And uh, when I got back to the UK, I knew I had more travel in me and she mm. knew she was done. And we had a number of differences that had, had emerged on that trip. But um, so I was on my own then for, we, we broke up and I'm like, no, I'm going to keep traveling. Yeah. And for about a year of this sort of mantra, was this is I'm not going to get into a relationship this is traveling for me and I'm going to go out and do the metaphorical I'm going to find myself and and even when I went to the airport to Heathrow airport as a musician I was notorious with my friends and bandmates for missing more flights than I caught people's express in America is a pretty casual affair and um, yeah, you could. Oh, I'll get the next one. But yeah. but I was so frightened of missing this flight that a friend of mine dropped me off and I arrived four hours early mm. and actually got on the previous Aeroflop, if I can call it that, flight. Um, and there in the queue behind me, in the wrong flight that I was queued up for, were these two Australian girls, uh, Joanne and Anne. And every time, this was the milk run down to Nairobi, mm. and every time the plane landed in Brussels, uh, Moscow, Aden, Lanarka, wherever we went, it was, it was about six sector flight. Um, this crew of people who were clearly sort of a bit more backpack oriented would kind of 
loiter and then mm. end up near the same seats. And by the time we arrived in Nairobi, we ended up in the same taxi and mm. and then the same street, mm. the famous Iqbal Hotel in Nairobi. And then we travelled together for about six weeks. Uh, and this group of people that we kept coming across, to me, was somewhat ideal except for this one annoying Australian woman who I didn't like. And that's Annie. <laughs> now the opposites attract and... And it was just friction. It was such a beautiful story till the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, friction. Yeah, um, sparks. Yeah, it sparks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And after six weeks, we we were together. That was 1989. Yeah. And I was... Um, when I got to that airport, just to go back, and I was so early, and I went... After I checked in, I went up to the pay phones at Heathrow and put my money in and I rang my dad and I rang my mum respectively and, and there were tears because I actually hadn't told them how long I was going for. Mm. I had done this special deal because I'd previously been working uh, in an airline associated business, a passenger services company and I managed to get a flight, uh, flight booking sort of un, un, sort of booked, uh, un, uh, unlocked as I was travelling. Mm. So it was actually two years, and my parents thought I'd be away for about six to to twelve months. And yeah. I said, "No, I actually, won't be back for two years." And and I said, "It's all right. It's for me. This is this is for me. Trust me. I'm I'm going to find myself or <laughs> something like that." And, you know, then go go back to the queue, and this <laughs> and he's behind me in the queue. So uh, that didn't last long. <laughs> um, and when kids came along. Did you do you remember if you had a preference for a boy or a girl either time? Um, I, I don't I don't recall having a preference. Uh, I remember when we discovered that we were uh, Annie was pregnant, and um, we actually had this extraordinary. Um, consultation with a social worker in Hornsby mm. is it Hornsby or Hornby uh, Hornsby in Sydney yeah um, where we were based at the time because we were travellers we were travelling and we'd only stopped in Sydney for a bit to meet her family um, staunch Catholics and <laughs> their daughter was pregnant and we <laughs> went to the social worker and said what earth are we going to do and this woman's name was Denise mm. and she was a, a very very large woman and um, I was all, all sorts of concerns about, you know, what of me will be in this child? And, you know, I, I, I had this flu here and I had this, I had this, uh, this sickness here. And I said, well, my child, I remember being quite um, fraught with worry. Mm. And um, she, she, she gave Annie the, uh, the examination uh, that she had to have and... She was a. She wore a large caftan, had a lot of jewellery, and and uh, yeah, she forgot to take her Ganesha ring off. So that, that was an entertaining <laughs> start to the internal examination. But she it was amazing. This woman put us right at ease, and I remember then. I can remember that evening. It was an evening consult with her, of going, "Well, we can do this. We're going to be parents," because she said, "You can still travel," mm. and and we did. We when we a couple of years for a couple of years we didn't, but. Uh, once we went, no, we're going to be parents. So our our situation, our, our worldview was, okay, we're stopping here for a bit, but we, we will still be travellers. That was our identity. Mm. Was We met travelling. Our struggles were through travelling. Our joy was through travelling. We wanted to keep doing it. Um, and the gender of the child was irrelevant. It was like, will we be able to travel with this child? Yeah. Um, and we did. And we by the time Ben was a couple of years old, we were in... India and Thailand and Nepal and trekking at altitude and doing various things that horrified uh, respective sets of parents. But um, uh, that was the first thing. Will, will we still be able to do what we do? Not, mm. not selfishly so much, but can we bring a child into the world and still be travellers? Mm. That, that, um, that was our first concern. Of course, we had a, a boy the first time around, but I, I honestly can't remember thinking about. Mm. You know, I see these gender reveal mm. things that people have now, and I have to say, I just find it 
oh, I don't know, there's a sort of, um, there's some sort of extended narcissism in all of that that I, 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 I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but, but I, I look at that no. and it just makes me cringe. I just, yeah, I, similar. Similar, yeah, right. I, I, I don't get it at all. Yeah. This, um, it's, it's as if you're aiming for a product or something and you've got this, great, we've got this, and it's just this human. Yeah. Just be happy you can have a human. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, and I guess that's one of the challenges um, that we spoke about before is how do you raise a human as a human but in a world that's built more for men than it is for girls? Mm. And do you need to adjust how you're parenting that human to mm. fit that context or yeah. to challenge that context? Is that something you think thought about yeah totally absolutely and you know uh, what's the word woke you know I'm, I'm woke. <laughs> I mean I'm 50 I'm coming up 55 mm. um, which I don't feel numbers they're silly things as well but um, I, that wisdom or experience of life I was alluding to before that I'm gonna I'm gonna grab the word woke just because as you know aware of a lot of issues and yeah. um, that I certainly was not remotely tuned into mm. back when we were beginning as parents or even back when Annie and I first met we were just having a life experience and it didn't you know identity politics certainly wasn't um, wasn't uh, being played out the way that it is um, today and. Yet, with the benefit of hindsight, would I do things differently in terms of preparing, um, helping to to raise a, um, a a female, you know, a young girl and a young woman? Definitely, I th I'm fairly sure I would. It would. There was a conscious decision going on, but we all have biases, um, and the ones that are hidden to us are the ones that are most fascinating when you unpack them a little bit later on saying, oh, wow, I had no idea I sort of carried that idea. Yeah. But I think something that does mark me a bit as a, in my sort of character as a person is that I'm, um, I, you know, people use the word emotional intelligence, maybe if I could shift it to social intelligence, I've, sort of, I've always seemed to have had that. Um, but there's an aspect of feeling so comfortable in that that I think I'm quite naive. I was sort of quite naive about some concepts that are now very much in the forefront of the mind of of young people. Mm. And I just like I was nowhere near thinking things like that at that age. Mm. You know, teenagers, I was, you know, um, football, music, um, getting drunk. I can't remember anything beyond. <laughs> the surface of that experience unless yeah. I sit down and really have a chat to myself and then you go oh that was interesting but, uh, interestingly I, I had a um, I caught up with one of my first girlfriends she, she was my first um, you know, when we were 13 14 talking through to about 17 but we we gravitated around each other um, our families collapsed at the same time and I think mm. we um, we then gravitated really quite heavily to each other um, but that in in there was my my first sort of real intimacy with someone, and as adults we've kept in touch as adults. And she's also moved over to Australia and lives up in New South Wales. And we've briefly touched on that in a conversation. Mm. We were like, "Thank you for those that time. It was a really safe, um, non-threatening." Um, joyful positive experience mm. and uh, I, I look at a young a lot of young people today approaching the same terrain and they they have to be armed with a lot more nous and um, there was something wonderfully innocent and stumbling and fumbling mm. about our um, uh, our emotional and physical experiences together and I, I think gosh today's young people have so much more to have to counter with mm. um, or to have to counter again I suppose it's that naivety that when you don't know what you don't know you can you can quite happily bump into things and go oh, 
that was good, or that, ooh, that wasn't so good. But I'm just alluding to the fact that I was very lucky to have very positive sort of intimate intimacy was sort of a very positive thing. Yeah. Um, as a, as a teenager into a sort of an early early adult, um, and I know that's I've imagined that when I've I've thought about my own kids and their sort of awakenings and what their experiences mm. have been like and have they been positive and it's mm. certainly a marker in my life that well whatever's gone right or wrong that bit that was good mm. that was stable and um, it's as if you have to try so hard to achieve that now mm. um, I've just been reading Ben Elton's book Identity Crisis which is about the catastrophic turn of events around um, uh, kind of political correctness and uh, it's a murder mystery thriller thing but it, but it's all about it, it starts off with this cop who's listening to the jam or listening to Paul Weller my musical hero when I was growing up and you, I can certainly identify with this character and he makes the mistake this cop at a, at a um, uh, press conference after a woman has been found murdered he uses the term wrong wrong place at the wrong time mm. and of course the media and social media descends on him as some type of um, yeah poster boy for the patriarchy and mm. um, the nuance is all gone it's it's I, I do I feel for I feel for young people today having to navigate that um, navigate the extremes where and how gender is is um battered around as, as weaponized, you know. Um, I'm just grateful I didn't have have that. But you had to parent that. Or but I had to, yeah, yeah, I had to parent that. That's interesting, isn't it? That, um, um, there was certainly, you know, when the, you might say that a, a child aligns a bit more closely with one of the parents or, or packs perhaps for a phase of life mm. that, um, you know, there was a time where you'd look at us as a family unit and go, yeah, well, Chloe's kind of got Annie and Ben's got me. and But sometimes you'd look around and you go, oh, it's, they flipped the card over. Now it's the other way around. But you don't, I don't sort of notice when it happened, you know. Like yeah. that. And I think that does, and that's just part of a family dynamic. But, but Chloe was so, so incredibly attached to Annie and my reading of it was at the time that we had made a decision not to have more kids after mm -hmm. two um, I opted to have a vasectomy and uh, we, th th it wasn't a hard decision to come to we, we thought about it for a long time but it wasn't a hard decision to come to and then you kind of you locked in your, your, your pieces are on the board you know you know pigeon pair one boy one girl you know Male and female couple, you know, we're just the ultimate <laughs> nuclear family. No um, white picket fence for you. Yeah, no, 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 yes, yes. And I'm now white, <laughs> I'm white male, privileged, yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but that um, alignment where you'd have, you know, I think I sort of really, Ben and started to really draw towards me when, when Annie was really focused on Chloe. And mm. Ben and I started to connect in a slightly different way. And I, I, I remember I had this distinct, distinct moment, this, this moment where I thought, oh, okay, this is, this is how things are. She, she breastfed, um, Chloe um, breastfed for a, a, a long time. Um, we're into the years. Mm -hmm. um, we were at the, and being the second child, she had a faster vocabulary development. But she's also this particular type of kid, um, and um, we would say she came out fist clenched, fighting. She was born at home in the shower. I helped deliver her, and and she was scrunched up, and she looked like she was going to smack someone. You know? <laughs> and she kind of carries that attitude of you know you don't sort of don't want to get on her wrong side. Um, she's a bit unrelenting, but and she's always been someone who sort of fights for her rights or other people's rights and that's a lovely thing to see mm. but I remember her at she would be late in her twos and she was having a Sunday afternoon breastfeed and mm -hmm. I walked into our bedroom it was in the Sunday afternoon and she would be on one boob 
and she would be driving the dial on the other one, like she was trying to tune into the radio or something. And I walked in, and she this is a two-year-old, and she drunkenly came off of the boob and looked over her shoulder at me and said, "Mum and I are having some one-on-one time." <laughs> this is a two and a half-year-old, uh, not just with vocabulary but with nuance. And and I remember feeling quite affronted, like oh, wait, I don't I don't belong in here. I'm not yeah. invited, and. Well, explicitly. Yeah, I, I did. I felt very much on the outer, but I, but I remember not feeling freaked out about it. Mm. We had a lot of trouble with sleep with mm. her. Ben was a really easy sleeper. Chloe was, um, she was a torrid sleeper. She would be screaming and um, oh, just unsettled. We, we used to camp all the time as a family. Then Chloe came along and we just stopped because yeah. there's no one in the, in the campground or anything could, you know, she'd just be disrupting everyone's peace and it, it affected us um so this feeling of being on on the outside was related as well to her sleep and that mm. i couldn't feed her in the night mm. and i think I, I have i've i'm not just this isn't just a thought bubble i have said this out loud to annie it's not something that we dwell on but that having made the decision not to have more children and have had the had the um the physical certainty of that by making Mm. you know the decision to have um a vasectomy i think there was a real clinging on from annie in terms of this is the last time i will go through this experience of that type of nurturing and breastfeeding and that closeness and it got to the point where um and i'm not blaming Mm. i'm not saying oh chloe was like this because annie was like that it was just the reality of the situation Mm. um she was savoring every last moment yeah but that had some unfortunate repercussions in terms of their attachment and the exclusivity, mm. which I felt very, very much out of. But the way she ended up down at, um, I think it's called Tweddle, Tweddle or Tweddle, it was a sleep centre. Mm. And, and he had a couple of attempts down there where they help you do control crying. And, and this was, Chloe by then was three, um, three or, yeah, I think about, about three. And, and finally we started to get sleep. And um, then you realise the link between lack of sleep and anxiety and mental health wow there was a there was a a, a life experience lesson in all of yeah. that and just life got a lot easier once she was sleeping again yeah and then then you can see kind of the four personalities of the family the, mm. there's four years between our kids yeah ben the day chloe was born ben he was going to be present at the birth but you know we, we spoke to him about it but we also realised it could be quite traumatic mm. and um, we, we were worried that you know he might he might really react to it so we had a friend kind of waiting around the corner and if it got too much for him mm. um, this person could come and get him um, <laughs> and about 12 seconds into the first into the first um, and his first I guess groan through the birth um, yep we rang and Ben disappeared. When he came back and there's this beautiful package, yeah. Chloe was there. He looked at Annie and looked at me and looked at Annie and looked at Chloe. And he'd, he'd been doing kinder gym with Annie. And he mm. said, Mum, can you do star jumps now? It's like he wanted his mum. Do I get my mum back? But, yeah. And no, he didn't get the same. He never got the same mum back because there no. was now two kids. And that, that certainly played into our family. Well, I've heard um, that there's few traumas aside from sort of um, death or, you know, some extreme physical, mental um, abuse or trauma that we go through that's equivalent to having a sibling born after us. Yeah. And the effect that that has for a young child to have that separation. Mm. My, my sister... That, that my, rupture. My sister you, had that experience with me coming along. Yeah. There's two and a half, three years between us and... Um, yeah, my parents both said, "Look, her her life fundamentally changed." Mm. Um, but again, she was she was a screamer before then, and apparently, yeah. you know, my my mum used the term "difficult," but yeah, uh, they still have an interesting relationship. But yeah, sort of... well, I mean, it's I think more normal than not to have more than one kid. So it's mm. it it is um, obviously common, but it's it is a huge impact that you know perhaps we don't spend enough time thinking about mm. as well. Yeah, and I'm the I'm the I'm the uh, the younger. 
yeah, of the same. Series. So that's my you're the same. Yeah, that's yeah. my experience of it. Um, I used to run an outdoor education program down at a school in Melbourne um, that I uh, was interested. We had a leadership uh, leadership program for mm. the year 10, 11, 12 students in there. We started in year nine, and but it really was a core thing in 10, 11, and 12. And these were people who, um, they were given quite serious leadership roles in, in the school, but end up sort of going assisting on the Kokoda trial or working in Nepal or going to South Africa. You know, it wasn't just doing stuff around the school. Mm. There was a lot of responsibility. And interestingly, we found that, and this is straw poll, there's something we realised later, that all of the female students who had been elected leaders, um, someone pointed it out in a staff meeting that all of them, without exception, had older brothers. Mm. And that that's made me think about, well, I'm the opposite. I'm the one with an older sister. Mm. Uh, what's my sister's experience been like? And she's certainly not someone you would think of who has that, um, the sort of characteristics of people that would ordinarily align with leadership. Mm. Of course, it's not that black and white, but no. that's been an interesting thought. Just where you fall in your family yeah. and then what role you then play, um, heir, heir, to, heir to what throne. You know? Yeah. Mm. There, was, um, there was some research It's quite widely cited now about looking at the NHL the ice hockey mm. in the states the professional league and there's a huge uh, a huge number or disproportionate number of professional ice hockey players that were born like in the first two or three months of the calendar year oh uh, yeah yeah and that's simply about they're a bit bigger than everyone else, so they're the first to get the opportunities. Where they fall in the school calendar, in the sporting calendar. That's right. Oh, yes. So if you get the opportunities, then you get additional training, mm. you're getting practice because you're on the field or on the ice more in mm. that case. Mm. Um, and it, it necessarily didn't correlate to skill at any point. It was about opportunities. I, I think families yeah. are somewhat so, similar. So similar thing, isn't it? Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about, you touched on it a while ago, but the the conditioning that you brought to being a parent mm. Mm. um were there things were there traits or behaviors that you you sort of have exhibited over the years that you've you've been conscious about and or either trying to try and bring out or shine a light on or or yeah. regulate in a, in a way yeah certainly so um i've my dad was always something of a mystery to me, yeah. and and I think partly because his own experience was a bit of a mystery to himself. Mm. He didn't know how to parent, mm. so he was, um, you know, he'd be eighty five if he was alive today, um, and my mum has and her family have always said, oh, it's as if we kind of welcomed him into the family. Not because we felt sorry for him, but it, that, that was like, oh, it's all right, mate. You can come, you can come with us, you know. Mm. And he didn't really embrace that, uh, and I've that's always been a mystery. Me, mystery why? Because surely, if, if something was missing, so deeply missing, would you not, would you not rush towards it? Yeah. So I wonder if the narrative is from my mother's side of the family is a bit idealised that they had something wonderful and mm. he had nothing, and therefore. Why wouldn't he run towards something wonderful? Mm. But I've certainly, um, I had a good friend. Uh, I have a good friend of mine who lives down in Dalesford, and we talk about this quite a bit. We both see ourselves, our role in life, whatever we do for our jobs, mm. or whatever we've done, and our choices. Um, we're cycle breakers, mm. and I, I, I couldn't. You know, I, I never had anything really terrible done to me, um, physically, psychologically. You know, not, not on purpose. And people have terribly sad, traumatic stories. I'm, I just, I'm very fortunate. I don't have that background. But, but there's still a cycle there mm. of, of, um, of secrecy, of um, sort of a, a form of emotional abuse, and, uh, and. That's my gig in life, was to kind of break that. And did you know that? Or is that something you look back on and that's, N that's no, how I think it's I, out? No, I, th I think it's kind of... 
something of an early choice or an yeah. early awareness. Again, maybe that, again, that social intelligence thing of going, I, I, you know, I, I gravitated to families that were really tight. Mm. You know, I used to love going over. It's really quite a story. I had a family friends lived in Kenya and I loved going for sleepovers at their house. As a teenager, we had so much fun because the, the, the mum and dad would get up in the morning and we'd all be having breakfast and the dad would drive off to work and the mum, Anne, would give him a kiss as he went out the door. I'd never seen that. I didn't, you know, I, th- I didn't realise how loveless my parents' marriage was mm. until then. So I knew, I remember that was, I must have been 13, 14, thinking, I want, I want, I want that. Yeah. But I was just awful. I, I caught up with my, that friend back in England last year and he's estranged from his father. His mother passed away. They divorced and he's estranged from his sister. And I was like, God, I thought you had a perfect family. So illusions are powerful, <laughs> hey? Yeah. Because I still carry that, there's still a bit of a beacon for me in terms of what a family could be. Yeah. Sort of, they had this kind of happy-go-lucky family love thing going on, and I just thought, I don't, wow, mm. we don't have that. I want some of that. So there was definitely something of like, at a, at a young age, going, well, I don't think you strung it into words. It's perhaps images and moments that you imagined. You know, mm. they say you don't remember a day, you remember moments. So I think you forecast moments as well. You don't think one day I will have a day where I'll get up at this time. You just think one day I'll have this, this thing. Yeah. And I thought, hey, well, I'm, 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 I'm going to have a better family than the one I come from. And there are lots of good things about my family. I'm not trying to paint it as a, you know, some sort of torturous experience. But, but there were lots of things I wanted to um, escape and recreate mm. and ha- have a better go at fixing up when it was my turn. So maybe just briefly, if I what. What were you doing? You, you. Uh, I've got a privilege here of being able to look out this beautiful view that no one else will see. But mm. you've obviously made some choices that have steered you in another direction to, to what some of your peers might have. Yeah. What are some of the, the decision points and? Um. So I I grew quite tired of my peer group. I actually found I that I hung out with. I gravitated towards older mm. people and typically older males would be, um, I was in bands and shared houses and everyone was three to five years older than me. Mm. So I was this kind of, you know, whether they were, part of that is them feeling they were looking after me and the way our community works and part of that was me seeking people out. I think I just felt comfortable. Mm. Um, and I, I seem to have the types of conversations that, or be more stimulated by the types of conversations that my peer group at the time weren't that, you know, um, I, I was probably a bit more, I could be massively irresponsible in some ways, but if there was a, a um, you know, a party scene or things were getting out of control, I was kind of the one looking after other people, mm. feeling or at least feeling a moral duty to do something like that. And I think some of my choices, I remember when I first went off traveling, I, I got an opportunity to tour America with a band uh, when I was 19 and I, I had a job and I left and my friends tried to talk me out of it. And mm. I, you know, I'm like, no, no, I'm going for this bigger experience. I didn't even know what it was and it all <laughs> fell, fell in a heap when I got there. It doesn't matter. And I think I've certainly made choices to leap into um, large experiences, I suppose, that were that required me just to go in the deep end and kind of try and pull it all apart, figure it out as we go. Very much a deep end learner. Um, so the choices I've made, I think of key things that I've done that have been um, standout um, chapter headings in my life mm. is, is as, a, as a musical collaborator, sort of being quite bold and kind of approaching people with ideas and then actually getting some kind of good outcome from that. Mm. Um, from... I, th- I think when you go and live on the other side of the world, you make a massive choice there about um, redefining your life. Mm. Um, I-, I wanted to get as far away from my own family in some ways, but also was dispirited by Thatcher's England and all of that sort of stuff and felt here was a, a place where I could uh, experiment and-, and try a different sort of way of living. And that's there's been some bold choices there. Uh, I gravitated towards the environmental movement over here 
not that I didn't in England, but it was just large protests. It was, it was really campaign for nuclear disarmament mm. in England was, was my... I just kept going to these rallies. And then I, I, I thought, no, I, I need to do more than this. And so I think choices which ended up being about environmental justice and social justice that became the work that I did eventually um, as an outdoor environmental education uh, teacher, working with youth at risk and then working in the university sector... Um, getting people connected to their landscape and thinking about the environmental uh, issues that we have. They're all choices and there are always easier things to do. And mm. I'm, I'm, I, I do like that saying of bite off more than you can chew and then chew like crazy. You know, like, <laughs> I definitely have done that. We're sitting here in our house. The intent of this was about exploring um, I suppose, the nexus between sustainability and creativity. This mm. was like a massive arts project that people would laugh at going, you're not going to be able to do this. And we have. Um, and it was torturous. And But sustainable? Uh, who's got five years to... Uh, <laughs> five years to give of their... What a luxury to have five years to build this yeah. um, family castle or whatever it is. But... Um, so each time, each of the things I've done, whether it be the field of work or the um, the larger projects or travelling with kids, they've, they've always been, there's always been someone quite close to my family saying, well, are you sure that's a good idea? Yeah. And strongly I go, look, I'm doing it anyway. Mm. And I see that in our kids as well, yeah. and that's nice. And I think... That's one of the nicest things. You can you can have flowcharts and have all the narrative and all the right speak and but if you just live your values, ninety mm. percent of your parenting is done through that process. And that was the the gig with this house as well, is if I were to talk about the environment. I, I'm an I'm an environmental hypocrite. I fly a lot, I've got a diesel um ute out there. Mm. I've got well Annie doesn't know about all of my boats, but I've got, <laughs> I've, got I've got thirteen <laughs> kayaks and boats and surfboards. There, you know, I'm, we'll, we'll edit that out, aren't we? Thank you. <laughs> um, there's uh, there's paradox everywhere, um, yeah. but there's intent, and the intent, the intent with this house to not live in a suburban cul-de-sac, yeah. and and not not have the life that was on offer but to 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 raise a family outside of that yeah paradigm was completely purposeful and faulted and whatever but when i see the way our our that ben and chloe have been i know that it's played a role in mm. their sense of where their values lie and, and, you, and that that that's without a word being said. You know, it's just living your actions. Yeah, is, is the most powerful thing you can do to me as a parent to to raise your kids. Um, don't over intellectualize it. I've yeah. seen many friends' relationships go down the gurgler mm. because they're trying to get it all politically even and right. And mm. um, and if you just get on, roll up your sleeves and do it. Mm. You don't have to talk about doing it. Yeah. And. I'm grateful that we've been able to do that for sure. And something that you've been doing, as you said, which flows on from your work as well as an outdoor um, ed lecturer, um, that connection to the natural world. Mm. Why do you think it's so important for young people to have that, or those experiences and that connection? Oh, let's and, have a whole series for the podcast wow. for that one. <laughs> and, well, I guess for girls in particular, yeah. because it is, I guess, sometimes seen as, you know, it's a boy's space. You take the boys camping, you take the boys uh, fishing. Historically, yes. Um, and you look at a country where most of our media comes from, America, mm. that's all, you know, the tools of um, imperialism and expansionism, mm. uh, you know, are tents and canoes and wagons and going west and mm. um, so or men going west yeah men men going west and being you know send the women out later or mm. um, yeah it's interesting but when I think of why that's so important as um, 
in our course that we have here, and this is the largest outdoor education course in the Southern Hemisphere that we have here in this town, uh, certainly has been for about 30 years, our female enrolments are higher than our male enrolments. Um, and yet I could see in there something of their... I think that outdoor education as a discipline has been either run by um, a sort of an eco-feminist ideology that's or that, that's been really strong or it's been run by people who are associated with mountains they're climbers or they're white water or they're ice climbers or they're skiers mm. and I fell into a version of being in the outdoors that was more about my family that we had young Ben mm. I was doing this course he was three months old when I started we would get back from trips off of our university bus on a Friday and people would go an hour later they'd all meet up in the car park and they'd they'd barrel off to the King River and go whitewater kayaking for the weekend. I couldn't do that because mm. I'd already left Annie on her own for four or five days with Ben and she was very socially isolated here. Mm. So there's the last thing I was gonna do was go and leave her more. I felt this terrible tension because I'd found this thing, this profession. I had no idea what I was going to do for a job. Mm. I, I had no concept of what I was good at um, until other people pointed it out. But whenever there were, wherever we were in the world, whenever there were people there, I'd gather them together and create an experience. And so that's how I sort of ended up in this field of work. But I would come back and go, we, we've got to do something. Like, I can't just not develop. Yeah. So canoes became a great way of... We actually used to go down the Ovens River, the Murray, the Goulburn, um, go into one canoe um, and put it for those baby capsules. Remember the baby capsules, the brown baby capsules with the Velcro strap? Mm. God help me. Um, how dangerous was that? But um, that's what we used to do. So I, my way of accessing the outdoors and including my family in it, mm. which was just three of us at the time, was canoeing. Mm. Um, and that then became what I specialised in, and I started building, started designing ground-up programs for schools. Mm. There was nothing there, and I designed a paddling program, which is very inclusive. Yeah. Um, I have always had more females enrolled in my river environment subjects than males. Mm. Part of that is the perception that it's a lower skill base, and it, it certainly is less technically demanding than, say, whitewater rafting or um, cross-country skiing or whatever. But people who come into it go, actually, this, this, is, this is an art. Mm. This, isn't, this is a different type of skill, and, and it's about creating experiences. And I really like that it's not just a bunch of guys mm. um, going, down, going down a river, but it's... Um, it's anyone who who gets who finds some allure in it, and is exploring the aesthetics of it. Is exploring uh, is exploring technical skill development, but is exploring peace. And they find I find that males and females equally, um, it, it it becomes less of an issue. Gender becomes less of an issue. Whereas if you're looking at white water, there's so many articles and lecture series about gender and. Mm and technical expertise and um, oh, fantastic male and female paddlers yeah. um, around in, in the flat water world because it's I guess there's a bit of license to it for it to be a bit more like a dance yeah. rather than a, a sport you know um, so that, that's been really nice and last year I've, Chloe and I went on a, uh, a two week sea kayak to around the Sundays, and I, a couple of students, ex-students came came along and a couple of people I'd studied with, crikey, nearly you know, 28 years ago, mm. and their son. We all went away up on the Sundays for two weeks and sea kayaked around and that was so lovely to do that with Chloe. She's, mm. We've been around the Able, we've sea kayaked around Able Tasman National Park in, mm. in um, New Zealand. She's paddled down the Murray, sections of the Murray with me a couple of times. But I wouldn't. She wouldn't ever consider herself an outdoor person. After the trip's packed up, she'll just put my stuff in the back of my car and say, "Here, you can have it back." So, whereas you know, when we've gone out with my son, you know, he'll go, "Oh, I'm, I'm going to buy a pack," and Dad, we should do this, or send me an online map saying, "Hey, we should go and do this walk." And he 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 would consider as part of his identity that mm. that he's someone who's quite 
becoming more comfortable exploring the outdoors. Mm. Chloe's never expressed that. She'll go along for the ride mm. if it's there and just be so comfortable there. Mm. And we had a great time. It was just we had a fabulous time. And I thought, and she said we had it somewhere on the trip. We just said, isn't this great that this is just so easy to do? Mm. And she goes, yeah, yeah, we're really lucky, and it, it's that we we have that in our relationship, and we have that in our skill set and our patience with each other. And our, she's got a great sense of humour. Yeah. She just fit into any group anywhere, and very very easy. Mm. Well, that's a lovely way to finish. I think. Um, thanks so much for your time, Chris. No worries. I think you are an oracle still. <laughs> <laughs> still, not, still not sure about that. But <laughs> I'm just a bit older. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. No worries. <clears throat>